0: Well, good morning again. We are uh, continuing on in a series that uh, we've called "A Picture of God," and uh, we're taking the time now through Easter to look uh, at what the Apostle Paul said was true, what the Apostle John said was true, and what Jesus Himself said was true. That if we want to know what God looks like, we simply need to look to Jesus. That if we if we see Him, if we if we look at the God that He describes and the God that He knows, then we get a better picture. Of God and, and just a clearer picture of Him. So, last week we started by looking at the baptism of Jesus. You know, we came through the Christmas season and then we looked at sort of the first major event in Jesus' life, of His baptism and how he we, we see that Jesus is with us in our humanity. He's he's one of us and he he joined into our humanity and he stands with us along sort of the, the muddy banks of our lives and he moves with us into the waters of transformation of repentance and and turning to God, and actually himself being the love of God that helps us turn in the first place, that helps us see that we do want to turn, we do want to change, we do want to be transformed and follow God. And if you remember in the baptism story, we see that, that God opens the heavens and, and comes down and says, or in, in his voice, he says, Jesus, this is my son. You are my son in whom I am well pleased and and like with Noah and Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Joshua, that, that God was validating Jesus as his prophet, as his man for the job to lead the people into the promised land, into the new land. And in that moment, Jesus was anointed in a way by God, by the Father, to be the leader of Israel, the chosen one. So, and then beyond that, if you remember, we see that the spirit comes down in bodily form like a dove and, and lands... On Jesus, it rests on him, indicative of the union of Jesus with the Father, indicative of the power and the authority that Jesus would, would operate in, the power and authority that he was living in, that he would be guided by and, and would live his life and do his ministry in. It was, it was Jesus's communion with the Father and, and with the Spirit that would empower him to live and die and be resurrected. It was Jesus's close communion with the Father, his knowledge of the Father. His trust of the Father that actually, I would say, led him to be faithful. Remember, he was fully human. And all that to say that if we know, if we know the Father the way Jesus does, we will live radically different lives, empowered lives. Lives of faithfulness because we believe that that God is good. Lives of authority over temptation because of our union with Jesus. Lives of humility because we see a God who is humble towards us. Ultimately lives of love for God and for others. So what I want to do today is, is drill down onto this this idea of this faithfulness of Jesus as demonstrated in the next major event in his life, which if you know if you know any of the baptism stories, you see that they're often connected to the temptation. We see that they're connected to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And I would argue that that Jesus' faithfulness to the Father led to a confirmation in his mind and in the mind of his followers eventually, that through this temptation, and he succeeds in it, or you want to say he has authority over it, he starts to see this, the disciples start to see this and believe this someday, that Jesus has authority over sin and temptation. And when we come to see the picture of God as a God defeating temptation, we see that our union with that God can lead to our defeat of temptation. We have authority over temptation. We see that we're on the winning team, I would say, that no matter what, when we have union with Jesus, we see that I can overcome whatever it is that I'm facing. If you remember the story uh, going way back in the Old Testament that that God anoints David through Samuel, if you remember before, he was just a boy. Samuel anoints David and says, you're going to be the one, you're going to be the king. And what happens next, the next story we see is that he faces the, the trial of Goliath, And he defeats Goliath and then Israel, instead of being the ones who were cowardly on the sidelines and couldn't defeat Goliath, they are joined with David, who is God's man for the job. And I see that kind of same imagery here, that Jesus is defeating temptation the way David defeated Goliath and that we get to be part of this union with him. So to set the stage for this, I need to remember that God intended for Adam and Eve to be image bearers. If we go all the way back to creation, we see that God intended them to reflect him into the world around them, to represent him in creation and the way they tended to it, the way they loved one another. And God looked on them and he declared that they were good. He looked on them and said, I delight in you. What I've done here is good. But if you remember, the enemy of God, Satan comes and tempts them away from that. He gets them to start to doubt that God actually cares for them, that God actually will provide for them. And he says, do you think God's really going to do that? Do you think God really will care for you? Does God really want your good? Maybe, maybe you should have as much power and authority as God has, and he tempts them into eating from the tree that they shouldn't have. And in so doing, when they do this, Adam and Eve gave into this temptation towards power, towards pride, towards getting their own provision. And when they do that, Satan, I'm sure, makes them think that they're going to be on the throne now. But instead, what we find out in all of humanity is that when we... Do that, it's actually putting putting evil on the throne. It's actually putting the power of darkness on the throne. It's a form of idolatry all the way to its core. It's It's not us on the throne, it's actually the evil one, the enemy of God who wants to steal life from God's children. And what we see them move off into is a life of toiling, a life of suffering, a life of sin that leads to death. But what we see in the story today is that Jesus hits this head-on. And we see that he comes away victorious over sin, over the sin that leads to death, over the idolatry. He won't bend to it, and ultimately showing that he is true humanity. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, look with me to Matthew 4. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, sort of the first gospel account about Jesus' life. Matthew 4. Uh, Matthew, you see that Matthew and Luke... And Mark kind of follow the same storyline, so if you want to look other places to see some other accounts of this story, you can look in those books as well. But in Luke 4, all right, remember we've, I mean, in Matthew 4, we've just come out of the baptism of Jesus, and in Matthew 4, 1, it says this, Matthew records this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I want to break this story down just into a couple different segments and, and how we see Jesus overcoming temptation and, and, and asserting the authority over sin and over temptation just by going a couple verses at a time. If you look in the, in the first couple verses there, I kind of poked out a little bit when I was reading it there. It says, he was hungry. Like, of course he was. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. But I think for us, we need to remember that Jesus was human, that he was That he was weakened in his human body the same way that we are. And Satan comes to him in that moment of weakness and tries to get him to do these things that he shouldn't do. And then Satan says to him, if you are the son of God, he says, if you are the son of God, do you hear it? This Satan, the, the accuser is sowing seeds or trying to sow seeds of doubt into Jesus's mind about his sonship i mean he just came out of this great incredible baptism moment when god says you're my son i love you and then satan a couple uh, a little while later says if if you are his son maybe consider this if you're his son he's trying to put this doubt into his head he's trying to get jesus to doubt his position in god and, and if he can possibly get jesus to give in to temptation and put himself or even satan on the throne rather than god now friends satan does the same thing to us he does the same thing to us in, in our lives. He is the accuser that, that tells us, you're no good. You're undeserving of God's love. You're not really his son. You're not really his daughter. He tries to sow these seeds of doubt into our head. And if we start to believe that, man, we're susceptible to so much that we will lead into, lean into all kinds of different behavior that leads to death. It's a form of idolatry. So at his core, Jesus, Satan is trying to tempt Jesus into saying, Maybe, I, maybe I'm not as worthy as I think I am. Maybe I'm not called the way that I think I am. So in verses 3 and 4, uh, he says, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He's appealing to this hunger. And Jesus answers him and says, It's written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, this, this goes back to an earlier story uh, in, in uh, Israel's, journey through the desert. If you remember when they came out of Egypt, they wandered through the desert for a good bit of time. And, and if you look down in the bottom at your Bible there, it might even say that this verse comes from Deuteronomy 8. Uh, but but really, it's a story even further back than that. It's a story from Exodus 16. So you don't have to look there now. I'm just going to tell us about it. But if, if you want, read Exodus 16 and 17 this week, and you can see this journey and sort of the parallels that happen in Jesus's temptation here. In this story, Israel is wandering through the desert, and God miraculously provides food for them. Remember, they're hungry, they're wandering, and they have nothing to eat, and God makes it—it it makes this, this dew come down that looks uh, like bread, and, they, and they're flour, and they put it together and they make bread out. It's called manna. And Israel was in need of this, and God miraculously supplies it. So this is referencing this in this story here in Deuteronomy. So it's this miracle that goes on, and the people are provided for in the desert, and later when Moses is is getting ready to to leave this earth, he's getting ready to die, he is warning them and reminding them about where they've come from, how God has cared for them all of these years, how God has provided this manna for them, how God even allowed them to grow hungry so that he could miraculously provide for them and and, and prove himself to them. And In Deuteronomy 8, it says this, Moses says this about God. He says, He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. And he warns them, You may say to yourself, My power and my strength have provided and have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. He's saying Moses was warning the people all these years ago, This you didn't provide for yourself, God provided for you, miraculously led you through the desert and provided these things for you. And so in Deuteronomy 8, he says, man, God, you don't live on bread alone, you live on the authority of God. You live on, on the words that come from God and provided that manna for you in the first place. Trust him. So when, when the enemy is trying to convince Jesus to turn the stones into bread, he's hearkening back to this idea of trusting God. God and whether or not you'll trust him to provide. And Jesus says, I don't live on that. I don't live on bread alone. I live on on the words that come from my father. I live on his authority. I don't rely on my own power. I rely on the father's power to provide for me. It's by his word and authority that provision happens in the first place. And Jesus is painting a picture of a father that loves his children, that provides for his children in their need. He gives them their daily." Bread. Remember, Jesus told us to pray for that. Look, friends, I have found this in my own life, that when I, when I try to turn stones into bread, I don't mean in a miraculous way, but when I try to force things to happen rather than trusting God to provide for me, it doesn't go well. Like, I could tell you story after story of mishaps that I've fallen into because I'm like, well, I'm just gonna make this happen. I'm gonna force this to happen. I'm gonna get this car. I'm gonna make this money. I'm gonna get this job. I'm gonna get this. I'm gonna do these things to try to provide for myself, and it doesn't go well. I've learned to trust that God will provide. Not that I don't have to work for these things, but trust that God is the one who provides these things for me, and I don't need to force it into being. So Jesus is recalling this thing from Exodus 16 to trust God to be the provider. So Satan throws another attempt at him. In verse 5, he says Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you were the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Then he quotes scripture. He says, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Uh, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this is kind of a bizarre story, kind of a bizarre backstory that happens here. Uh, and I want to try to dive into it just a little bit about what, like, what is going on here. Again, this accuser is trying to get Jesus to doubt his sonship. He's saying, if you're the son of God, maybe throw yourself down from here and see if God shows up and protects you. He's trying to get him to doubt his position in in God. So he tells Jesus to throw himself down. And and Jesus' answer, to me, seems to make sense. He says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Like, hey, I'm not going to give God a challenge like that, right? Like, that's how that reads. Not going to put the Lord my God to the test. But again, there is more to this. Like the bread and the stone story, this goes back to another event in the Exodus of Israel. In Exodus 17, uh, in, and in Deuteronomy there in 6, it quotes it. He says, do not test the Lord your God like you did at Massa. He names this place. Moses is getting ready to leave the earth, and he warns the people, don't test the Lord like you did At Massa, well, what the heck is this about? Like, why is Jesus recalling a story about not testing the Lord from Exodus 17? Well, if you go and you look at that story, you see in Exodus 17, the people have been provided for by God. Manna has been coming down. They're making bread for it. They're wandering through the desert. They're being fed, but now they're thirsty. So they're saying, "We need water." They start quarrelling with Moses. It says, and they're they're arguing with him. Why? You know, why'd you lead us out here? Maybe it would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt. Get us water. And they quarrel with him and, and complain to him that they, maybe they should have stayed in Egypt. And at first, it seems to be that their sin would be arguing with Moses, which it certainly was. They should not have been arguing with God's appointed leader. But Moses says at the end, at the end of chapter 17, he says, They were sinful because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This was the test. This was the test that they were putting before the Lord. This is where it is. He says, This is where the the connection starts to come into focus with Jesus' temptation, this story from Exodus. The Israelites doubted, when they didn't find water, the Israelites doubted that God was actually with them, that God would actually provide for them, that God would actually care for them. And it says, yeah, you quarreled with Moses, that was bad enough, but you didn't believe that God was in this. You didn't believe that he would care for you. And this is what it means when he says, don't test the Lord like you did at massa when you complained about the water the story ends there with god providing water for them from the rock if you remember and this is all sorts of symbolism here of jesus that we see in the book of john but the point being they didn't believe that god would be there to protect them they didn't believe that god loved them and would care for them so when satan is telling jesus to throw himself down throw yourself off of this high point and see if god shows up to protect him jesus says i'm good I don't need to do that. I already know that God is protecting me. I already know that God led me here and God is leading me. And whatever God wants, he will do. I'm trusting him. I'm not going to test God in that way. I'm not going to test him to see if he shows up because I already know that he's here. He's got me secure. He's looking out for me. I mean, think about this. If Jesus says, yeah, you know what? Let's, let's do this. Let's, I'm going to jump off of here and see if God shows up. That word if right there is his lack of faith. It's his doubt. He's already saying, he's already testing God by saying, I don't know if God will do this. I don't know if God is for me. Will God actually protect me? And so Jesus says, I'm not doing that. I already know that he is here and he is for me and he's leading me and guiding me. Friends, do you see it? He is the fulfillment of what Israel should have been. He's the one who says, I am not going to turn this stone into bread. I'm going to trust that God provides. I'm not going to test God and try to see if he shows up and protects me like Israel did. I know that he is my father who loves me, the God who's all-powerful and holds all things and holds us in the palm of his hands. Now, look, I'm a realist. I know that this, like... You maybe you've heard this preached on before, or maybe this sounds like it even preaches nice. Now they're like, okay, good, way to go, Jesus. Like, overcoming temptation. Like, what does it mean for me in my real life? Like, what does it mean to be to be in union with Jesus? So I just want to share a little bit of insight into, into my heart in the midst of this. Um, starting this, like, family on mission, I think, thing, like, this idea, like, this is nerve-wracking. Like, we moved up here a couple years ago and didn't know anyone, like we moved into the wilderness of Lehigh Valley, like didn't know anyone, felt alone, and we're just trusting that, that God was going to do this thing. And, and when you're starting, <laughs> it's funny, when you're starting to try, or when you're trying to start a new church, um, there is no shortage of good advice out there, and there's no shortage of bad advice. There's no shortage of people who are like, I've done it, here's what it should look like. You need lights that look a certain way. You need a stage set up a certain way. You need a certain ambiance. You need a certain dynamic. You need Preaching needs to be X, Y, and Z. It should be 40 minutes long and exegetical. It should be 20 minutes long. You want to make sure people can stay awake. Like, there's all these pieces of advice when you're doing this about how to start a church, and particularly this idea of how to make a big splash, how to be a big event that people will be drawn to, and maybe people will come out to a light show and... and and we just didn't feel called to that. We felt called to simply Jesus, to be a family on mission, centered on the gospel, and that that was good enough, that that was enough, that that was attractive enough on its own, that we didn't need to gussy it up in some way to make it special for everybody else. It's special on its own. So our call in the midst of this has been to be faithful ministers of this, and you have come along as team members to help own this call as well, to lead this little family to love Jesus and to care for one another, and honestly, to let the chips fall where they may. This is God's, not ours. God has led us to this point. It's either going to work and be successful, whatever that means, uh, in the eyes of church planters around the world, Uh, or it's going to be successful because God's faithful. And God wants to see the gospel preached, wants to see people living as a family. And it's not up to us to make it happen. It's not up to me to turn stones into bread. It's not up for me to test God and say, are you really in this? It's just to say, I'm going to trust you, God. You've called us to this. We're going to walk in faith that this is your thing. To trust that he is the faithful one who provides. But all along the way, can I just tell you this? All along the way, there's this little voice whispering, in my ear, in my head, that says, "Do you really think God is in this? Do you really think people are going to join this unimpressive show at the YMCA in Nazareth? Like, do you think? Yeah, I, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not. The, you're not valid. You don't have good good enough preacher. You don't have good enough singing. Maybe you need to put." More chairs out, or maybe you need to put less, a better part, like, right, like, there's all these voices that start to speak into my head and try to get me to doubt. So when I'm preaching about this, like, understand, I, I get that it might preach well and say, don't be tempted, like, but I understand what it feels like to have validity, to have your self-worth poked at, to, to have your, 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 you know, your idea of self be messed with, but what we see Jesus doing And what we're trying to do is say, God is already at work. God is already at work on my behalf and his behalf. He has brought us here. He's brought you to where you are in your life. And he's walking with you in it. We don't need to force it. We don't need to panic. We don't need to doubt it. We just need to stay the course and continue listening to the Father. What is he calling us to today? What is he calling us to this week? He will continue to lead. And Ultimately, what I find is that success in life and in church ministry, whatever you want to call it, success is actually just faithfulness. It's just faithfulness, not, it's not a show, it's not a performance, it's a faithfulness to what God has called us to. So I actually feel more secure in the risk and in some of the loneliness that we went through in the beginning than if I was trying to seek my own security and provision. Plus, it's a lot more fun. I mean, I can just tell you, it's a lot of fun to follow God and like watch him do things and provide people. Like, I didn't know who was going to show up today. But I was like, we got to do this. Like, this is going to be fun. And if there's 10 people there, great. And look, like God provides, like he knows what he has called us to. Anyway, I'm rambling about myself. I'm sorry. I just want you to know that I know what it feels like to have self-worth poked at by the enemy and to say that I'm not good enough and that we're not doing enough. Am I really his son? Am I really his daughter? All right, look at me at verses 8 to 11. This is sort of the most kind of straightforward uh, section here. It says, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Again, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6. If you look, maybe your Bible has a little note down there. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, which again is Moses reminding the people about their Exodus journey, saying, worship the Lord only. Don't worship these other gods. Don't bow down to anyone else. But beyond that, if you look at that story from Exodus, we see that the people are provided bread, they're provided water. And then the next thing that happens is we see Moses up on a high mountain, we see Moses overlooking a battle that's occurring between the Israelites and the Amalekites. And if you if you've read this story before it's a fascinating thing. We see Moses up there and it says that when Moses would raise his hands the battle would go well for them. And when he would let his hands down at his side they would start to lose. Like what in the world is that about? Now think about this. When you put your hands in the air, what are you? You're you're defenseless. You're not holding a weapon. You're at a place of weakness. You're at a place of saying, I give up. God was proving again to the Israelites through Moses symbolically having his hands in the air that he is the victor over the enemies. It wasn't in the hands of man to make it come about. He was saying, look, Israel, it's only when Moses has got his hands in the air. This isn't through Moses. This is through a divine act of God that the enemy is defeated So what Moses is reminding the people of in Deuteronomy 6 is he's saying, listen, don't try to get all this, don't try to get this land for yourself, trust God. Trust that God is the one fighting the battles on your behalf. Moses says that, remember that God is the banner that we raise up. So when Satan tempts Jesus with getting power by bowing down to worship him, by giving him authority, Jesus combats this by saying, I worship God only. He is my banner. He is the one worthy to be worshiped. He is the victory. He is the power and the authority, not you. Not me, not Satan. God is the power and the authority. And with that, the devil, the enemy of God flees. He flees the presence of Jesus and Jesus through his faithfulness to God is proven to be the true faithful one, the faithful son of God, the new Adam who did what the original Adam couldn't do. And gave in to the temptation and put himself on the throne and ultimately put evil on the throne. We see that Jesus has proven to be the true faithful Israel who withstands the temptations through the desert, in the wilderness, and resists the devil. And in so doing, he's true humanity. This is what it looks like to be truly human with authority over the enemy of God. Now, look, I'm aware that most of you aren't out there actually making deals with the devil. Like... I assume that that's the case, right? Now, I've heard it happens, but I assume that, you know, you're, not, you're trying to follow God and you're out not making out deals with the devil to try to get authority over, uh, you know, foreign nations. But I do think that we often compromise, we make these little deals in our head about how to get ahead, about how to get authority at the job or uh, to get accolades in school or, uh, you know, in, in athletics and We sell our soul to these things, and we sell out to these things trying to gain our self-worth. And I get it. We're not like bowing down to Satan, but we're bowing down to something other than God. We're putting something else on the throne. We're finding our self-worth in something other than God. We compromise, and we cross boundaries that maybe we shouldn't be crossing to gain self-worth or to gain authority, and it really ends up putting Satan on the throne rather than Jesus' Rather than even ourselves, we end up putting Satan on the throne and, and allowing evil to take root in our lives. Rather than trusting Jesus to provide for us, trusting him to keep us secure, rather than trusting that we are loved and cherished and have purpose in our union with him. Friends, this is what it looks like to raise the hands to the Father and say, I trust you. I trust you that, that this is yours to give me self-worth. I'm not going to fight or compromise to get these things in my life. I trust you to give me my so, what do I see in this for us now? What's the picture of God? Well, as much as Jesus was fully human and with us in baptism, I think one of the things we see in his temptation is that he's altogether different as well. He's altogether holy. He's altogether perfect and sinless. He's everything that we are unable to do. He is the faithful one that does not falter when tempted. He's the faithful one that does not give in to sin like Adam did. And he has come, please understand this, friends, he has come to have authority over sin. He's come to have authority over idolatry, and he doesn't give in like we do. He is the one who can lead us into full life. He's the true human that models what it looks like to be dependent on the Father. And he has authority over the enemy of God. Remember, he hadn't yet died. He hadn't yet been resurrected. This is Jesus in full humanity having, having uh, dominion over the authority of sin and over temptation. But by our union, by our dependence on Jesus, by our union with Jesus, he goes before us and has authority over sin. By our union with Jesus, we get to put God on the throne rather than the powers that enslave us. So look, I've heard this passage preached many times. And it's it's typically the same thing. Memorize scripture so that you can defeat the enemy. Memorize scripture so that you can you can battle the enemy. I, w- I want to just I want to honor the idea of scripture memorization. Okay, I am all for it. It's incredibly helpful to implant these things in our brain. But the reason we put these things into our brains and into our hearts is not so that we can make sure we can battle the enemy, like with the sword, right? Like you've heard this preached about before. Like this is not what we're called to. We're called to implant these things into our head so that we can remember who we are in our union with Jesus, so that we can remember that it's God who does the fighting, so that we can rest instead of feeling like we're the ones that need to make it happen. We implant these things to remember who Jesus is. Who God is and who we are in them, sons and daughters of God, who God delights over and says, I love you, I am for you, I will provide bread and water for you, I will give you the promised land and the promised life to live into. We are loved and cherished by God. There's no need to look to the provisions on our own. Listen, we read scripture to see and know the God that Jesus knows, okay? Okay? We look at Scripture to know the God that Jesus knows. We share our weaknesses with others through community groups and through family who can help us raise our arms. Because there's times when we're too tired to do that. Or we find ourselves fighting and we have community that says, raise up your arms. Look to the Father to provide for you. We pray to bow the knee and put God on the throne, not ourselves. We ask Him to provide our daily bread to protect us from falling asking him to give us purpose. We do these things to be in union with Jesus, who is the overcomer over temptation. He is the one who slays the giants. On our behalf, we simply are called to be in union with him. Friends, be part of this family. Be part of community groups. Be part of walking with others and reading scripture and saying, remind me who I am. Remind me who I am so that I don't falter. Remind me that Jesus is the one who fights on my half, and I am empowered by him to live the fullness of life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, help us remember that we, we are actually more akin to cowardly Israel standing on the hillside while Goliath taunts than we are King David. <laughs> we are not Called to be King David, Jesus, you are. You are the one that slays the giant. You are the one who has power and authority over sin. Help us be in union with you through prayer, through community, through serving, through memorizing scripture. Help us remember who we are so that we can go out and overcome the temptations in our lives. Remember to put you on the throne, not ourselves, not compromise, not accolades, that we could put you on the throne and help us, I don't know, lead into full life and really understand what that looks like, to live in the promised land, to live in the kingdom of God, where we are provided for, where we are protected, and where we have purpose as sons and daughters in the family of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you have power over sin. Help us be in union with you. In Jesus' name, amen.